this morning we continue in our survey, if you will, of the life of Abraham and working through his life, his example, the way that the Lord deals with him, the promises that are given to him. Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 13, chapters 13 and 14, a sermon that I've titled both Contentment and, Cre- and Confidence in the Creator, as we see uh, Abram displaying more and continued trust in the Lord. And uh, this passage today, we'll find that when the land that Abram and Lot, his nephew, share as they leave Egypt and begin to settle, the land that they share becomes sparse because they're becoming prosperous and uh, they run out of places to feed their, uh, their respective flocks. Abram and Lot will separate in order to maintain peace between one another. It's better to separate and to get along than to live together and be fighting all the time. And so uh, in that, Lot chooses the Jordan Valley as his place of dwelling. And Lot's choice of the Jordan Valley, we find, appeals to his senses, appeals to his eyes. Uh, It looks like a a fruitful and opportunistic land, but ultimately leads him into great danger. On the other hand, Abraham's confidence in God's provision uh, leads him to blessing and victory even over his enemies. This is a complex Uh, passage in some ways today, and so I want to do my best to sort of walk us through it. And in order to maybe help us understand the flow of the passage today, I have another one of my infamous maps. And so Kyle is going to be helpful to put that up there. And if you have learned nothing about me so far in the last year between uh, in Acts and now in Genesis, you know that I like maps. And so that's what we do. Uh, I've got a little laser pointer here, and this is fancy 21st century technology. And I'll be pointing on the screen to my left. Okay. So last week we saw uh, this, there's a sort of purple arrow coming down from the north. We saw Abram traveling from Haran down to Shechem. And then uh, once things, uh, once a famine uh, occurred in the land, Abram moved along this uh, orange route into Egypt, uh, all the way over here on this wall, off the screen, into Egypt where he could find food. We saw that he lied about his half-sister Sarai, who was also his wife, saying that she was just his sister and uh, all of the wisdom of that decision uh, leading him to be kicked out of Egypt by Pharaoh. And so in our passage today, he will return along this blue uh, colored route uh, back to Bethel and to Ai, where he and Lot in chapter 17 will separate. Lot will follow the course of this greenish arrow toward Jericho and then down south along the uh, uh, western shore of the Dead Sea into the area of Sodom. Uh, and Gomorrah. He'll pitch his tent just outside Sodom. And already you're going, this is a bad decision, Lot. And you're correct. Now, during the time uh, Lot is in Sodom, uh, there are several other cities up and down uh, this uh, uh, eastern side of the Jordan Valley. And these several cities, there's five of them or so that we'll find in the text today, were at one time occupied uh, by four or, or governed by four Mesopotamian overlords. Mesopotamia is over on this wall over here, okay, off of the screen uh, uh, further east. Now, uh, In the first part of chapter 14, we'll read about a war that takes place, a war campaign, where these Mesopotamian kings um, are being rebelled against by uh, by these sort of uh, Canaanite 
uh, area uh, kings and cities. And so the Mesopotamian overlords will wage a campaign coming from north to south, uh, defeating all of these cities, taking, uh, defeating Sodom, taking Lot and his family captive, and then working their way back north uh, on the western side uh, of the Dead Sea where they'll be met by Abram, uh, defeated by him, and then chased off as far as Damascus, which is up here on the ceiling apparently. And so, um, so that's what's happening today. Abram and Lot separate. Lot goes to the land uh, near Sodom. He is, uh, will eventually be taken as sort of a prisoner of war by these Mesopotamian kings. And then Abram will come along to rescue him and will be uh, introduced to an interesting man named Melchizedek. All of that in mind, with all of the moving around and that sort of thing in the text this morning, here is what I want us to do. Like Abraham, in response to this text, I want us to learn to commit to exercise trust in God and in his perfect provision. Because he, God, is the greatest source of our contentment and he is the greatest antidote to our sinful desires. So then let us learn in Christ this morning together to be patient, to be trusting, and to find contentment in being blessed by Christ's redemption. Stand with me, will you, as we read together Genesis chapter 13. We read, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with him, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram Abram settled in the land of Canaan. While Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And God bless the reading of his word and us as we study it. You may be seated. We'll look at chapter 14 here in just a moment, but for the time being, we'll focus our attention on Genesis chapter 13. Of one encouragement to you this morning, you see it there in your worship guide, one encouragement with two implications or two reasons for doing it. The encouragement is this, trust the Lord. 
trust the Lord. And the first reason to trust the Lord is because he is your contentment and your blessing. Trust the Lord. He is your contentment and blessing. We see that God demonstrates that he is both the contentment and blessing of Abram uh, in at least three different ways in this passage before us. First, through Abram's gracious offer. In the first several verses of this chapter that we read, we find Abram and Lot's prosperity upon leaving Egypt. Both of them have a lot of possessions. As semi-nomadic people, they had a ton of livestock, and so much, in fact, that they're running out of space to pasture all of their sheep and goats and cattle and, and the like. It's becoming so difficult to pasture all of their livestock that the herdsmen of the livestock even begin to argue over who gets the rights to what pasture land and which watering holes and that sort of thing. This prompts Abram then to make this exceedingly gracious offer to Lot, his nephew. He says in verse 9, we read, look at all the land in front of us. Choose some of it for yourself. And whatever portion you don't take, I will. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. No big deal, says Abram to Lot. Pick whatever you want. Let us not overlook, friends, just how gracious and how generous this offer is. And let us see some of Abraham, Abram's character in it as well. Abram's offer of the land uh, to, to Lot, this generous offer, serves the purpose of, of doing two things. It keeps the family at peace, first of all. Abram says, let there be no strife between us because we are kinsmen, Abram says. Abram's concern is more for his relationship with his nephew, for family relationship, than it is for physical prosperity. It's not good for us to fight, says Abram. Just pick some land and wherever you go, I'll go the other way. No big deal. And so he instructs Lot to look out and to see just how much land lies in front of him. Behold, does not the whole land lie in front of us? He's inviting Lot to see how deeply the Lord has already blessed them. Look, says Abram to Lot, look, see all that is in front of us, all that God has provided. There's plenty of space for both of their families because God has provided more than they have needed up to this point. And this is precisely why Abram can make such a generous offer. He sees the blessing of the Lord. He knows, as we read from Genesis chapter 12, uh, verse 7, that all of the land would be given to him and to his offspring. We saw that last week. And even now, he's beginning to see that promise come to fruition. There's so much space in front of us, Lot. There's no reason for us to fight. God has provided. He sees the blessing of the Lord. Abram knows, that what he need, knows what he needs, and he knows that God has met all of those needs and more by this time. Already that promise of Genesis 12 is beginning to bear fruit in Genesis 13. And Abram, who trusts the Lord, trusts the Lord to continue to provide so that he and his nephew can remain at peace. And where Abram's offer to Lot illustrates his generosity and his continued trust in God because he knows that God is both his contentment and his blessing. On the other hand, Lot's choice of the land and his subsequent actions uh, there in the land uh, near Sodom reveal his own impulsive and sinful character. So on the one hand, we have Abram who trusts the Lord and is able to be generous with, with all that the Lord has provided. And on the other hand, we have Lot who follows not necessarily, who is looking not necessarily to the provision of the Lord, but to the provision of the things of the world. When Lot lifts his eyes there on that high place, he sees the beautiful and fertile Jordan Valley. It's so fertile, in fact, that it resembles, as Moses tells us here as he's writing Genesis, it resembles the, the vestiges of the Garden of Eden and the, the abundance of the Nile Delta in Egypt. The Jordan Valley is a great place to be. 
What we find in Lot, though, is the beginning of a tendency to disregard, a tendency to ignore the blessing of God uh, in the future or for the future for the pleasures and profit of the present moment. Lot's choosing of the Jordan Valley isn't in and of itself enough to say that Lot is impulsive and sinful. But it is the first in a pattern of increasingly sinful decisions that Lot will make. Following the appetite of his eyes for lush land, Lot finds that that is not enough. And so even as he settles in the Jordan Valley, he continues moving eastward. While the Jordan Valley would have afforded all that Lot would have needed, pasture land, watering holes, space for his family, Lot desires something else. He desires something more, something more desirable. And so he moves his tent right up to the edge of Sodom, which we know from Genesis 18 and 19 and from verse 13 of our passage here this morning, that Sodom was a wicked city. As the text says, full of great sinners against the Lord. Lot's poor decisions continue and his gravitational movement toward Sodom finds him dwelling in the wicked city in chapter 14, verse 12. Here's what we're intended to see and to understand from this chapter. That Lot, Abram's nephew, because he is contented by what is visually appealing, because he is satisfied by what appeals to the eyes, and that which promises instant gratification... Lot finds himself moving toward, flirting with, and then ultimately giving himself wholesale over to that which is wicked and sinful. Because Lot, unlike Abram, is not able to see the blessing of the Lord in front of him. Is not able to find his contentment in in the Lord himself. But in what the land has to offer. In what the city, that great city of Sodom, has to offer. Abram demonstrates his trust in the Lord through his generous offer. Lot demonstrates his, his, I think, his distrust in the Lord through his impulsive character. But Abram, because he's content with the Lord's promise and content with his present provision from the Lord, Lot is, or Abram is free to be generous. He's free to be content with what the Lord provides. And so in response to Abram's continued faith and trust, we see third and finally in chapter 13, the Lord's repeated blessing. When we find our contentment, when we see that all of our blessing is, is in and from the Lord, we receive repeated blessing from Him. And this is how chapter 13 ends. With God's blessing and, and reaffirmation of the promises of land and offspring and blessings to Abram. Look, look at the last uh, couple of verses, last verse of chapter 13. Um, excuse me, uh, start in verse 14. Where God says to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. As Lot goes to the Jordan Valley, following his eyes, following his appetites, Abram settles in the land of Canaan. And there he is promised by God that in time he will possess all that he can see and then some. A reaffirmation of the promise of Genesis 12, verse 7. That he will have numerous descendants and then some. Right, So, so that if, if someone can count the dust of the earth, the grains of sand on the earth, so also will they be able to count Abram's descendants. 
The Lord promises quite literally to bless Abram in incalculable measure because of Abram's continued trust in the Lord, his contentment in the Lord. Friends, this morning, Christian this morning, we must learn to define contentment, not in terms of how we feel today, but learn to define contentment in terms of God's fulfilled promise, which is Christ who saves us from our sins. Abram's contentment came from trust in God's promises to him. And as we learned last week, the promises of land and of offspring and of blessing to the nations all find their fulfillment in Jesus, who is the offspring of Abraham, the builder of a heavenly kingdom, whose death for sin and resurrection is the foundation of God's salvation, which is for all people. We reviewed all of this last week. Abram's momentary blessings were but signposts and shadows of a greater blessing and of a greater promise. For as we read last week in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, and even saying this morning, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So then, redefine contentment. Redefine contentment in terms of salvation through Jesus Redefine contentment in terms of a right relationship with God through trusting in his son. Redefine contentment in terms of your forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God the Father, our provider. Don't settle for shadows of the greatest blessing, but be content with all that you have. And Christian, be content with all that you lack. Knowing God has met your greatest need in Christ. He closes his first letter to Timothy. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. Just listen to these words. Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul writes, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Dear friends, if you want to be content in this life. You must know and redefine your understanding of contentment. That contentment is not found in the things that this world can afford. Contentment is not found in in, in a consistent paycheck. Contentment is not found in clothes on your back. Contentment is not found in shelter over your head. Contentment is not found in a fulfilling relationship with your spouse. Contentment is not found in a loving relationship with your children. Contentment is not found in having many good friends at church. Contentment is not found in showing up to church every Sunday and ticking that religious box. Contentment is found and only found in knowing God, your creator through his son, Jesus Christ. That's real contentment. Paul knew Christ so personally, so richly, so intensely that even while chained in prison, hungry and beaten, he can say, I'm content with this and even more. Friends, do you know God that way is your contentment and blessing through Christ his son? If you don't, look to, look to Abram who sets an example for us in how to do that. All that Abram has, and he has a lot, but all that Abram lacks, he lacks a lot. With all of it, he trusts the Lord. And he finds his contentment and his blessing in him.
And from the end of chapter 13, we get the, uh, in the beginning of uh, chapter 14, we get the narrative of how those Mesopotamian kings we mentioned earlier take over the, 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 uh, the, or conquer, reconquer the five cities that had rebelled against them in the land of Canaan. Verses 1 through 16 of chapter 14 tell us how all this came about. And there are several kings uh, that are named. There's four kings of Mesopotamia against the five kings of the, the sort of Canaanite Palestinian era, uh, area. And they go to battle. And in that battle, uh, the Mesopotamian kings uh, uh, are able to overcome the Canaanite kings. And the Canaanite kings end up falling into the tar pits in the area of Sodom. And so that's just kind of a fun image for you, I guess. But that's how they are defeated. And in defeating the king of Sodom, uh, the, the Mesopotamian king, Keterlaomer, uh, say that five times fast, takes as a prisoner of war uh, many of the people that live there, but especially Lot and his family, who, as verse 12 of chapter 14 tells us, had come to live in that city. He was dwelling in Sodom at the time. In verses 13 through 16, Abram receives word of his nephew's imprisonment, being taken uh, hostage, being taken captive by this Mesopotamian king. And so Abram musters uh, his own troops. He's got about 318, the text tells us, 318 men in his own household who can fight. And so he takes those men and some of the men from some of his allies in the area. And they go after the Mesopotamian king, Keterlaomer, and they overtake him in the night and chase him as far off as Damascus, rescuing Lot and his children. And we come to verse 17. After his return, after Abram's de- de- return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. So Abram comes back from beating the Mesopotamian king and the king of Sodom, who was defeated by that Mesopotamian king earlier, comes now to meet Abram. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him, he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, give me the people, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Those are the three of Abram's allies who went to fight with him, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. He says, if they want a share of the spoil, let them have their share, but I'll take nothing. In these last verses, we see again this call, this encouragement to trust the Lord as evidenced in Abram's life. We learned earlier to trust the Lord because he is our contentment and blessing. But now in chapter 14, we learn from Abram to trust the Lord because the Lord is possessor and provider of all things. On his return back southward after defeating Keterlaomer and the other kings, Abram arrives at this valley of Shaveh, which is west of Salem. Salem is the ancient name of the city, Jerusalem. And there, Abram is met by two kings. First, he is met by the priest king, Melchizedek. 
Now Melchizedek, whose name literally means king of righteousness, is the first priest mentioned in Genesis, and and thus the whole Bible. Never before this point has a priest yet been mentioned, so this ought to to perk our interest a little bit. But this uh, priest-king, Melchizedek, has no relation to Abram much less to the Levites who, who do not yet exist in the biblical timeline, the Levites who will be descendants of Abram and, and uh, the priestly tribe and the people of Israel. Melchizedek exists as a priest outside of Abram's line. Melchizedek appears in this text without any mention of any family relations or any progeny. His parents, his, his, uh, his ancestors are not mentioned, and neither are his descendants. But he comes to Abram bringing wine and bread, symbols of luxury and a bestowal of favor upon Abram as he returns victorious from battle. What is more, Melchizedek offers Abram a priestly blessing. He blesses Abram in verses 19 and 20. In the name of God Most High, the Hebrew name there is El Elyon. God Most High who possesses heaven and earth. And then Melchizedek turns and blesses God Most High, El Elyon, who has delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. Melchizedek is a mysterious figure in Scripture, appearing only three times in all of the Bible. Here in Genesis 14, once in Psalm 110, and then one time in Hebrews chapter 7 in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 7 is a, or Hebrews, the entire book is helpful to us as Christians to learn how to read our Old Testaments rightly, learn how to read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. And the author of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek is a type, he's a shadow, he's a, a prefiguring, a signpost along the way, pointing people to Christ. He's a type for Christ because he is a priest king who is not under the law of Moses, but a priest king who precedes even the law of Moses. The importance of Melchizedek here in Genesis is in that he helps us to know what a life of submission to God looks like. A life submitted to God Most High knows that he alone is possessor and provider of all things. Did you notice that in in, uh, Melchizedek's confession of who God is and, and who is blessing Abram, God Most High? A life submitted to God knows that there is great blessing in knowing and humbling ourselves before God who is possessor of all things this way. Jesus himself will will fulfill this picture of a priest king outside of the law or or, or separate from the law as one who, who fulfills the law without even necessarily having to be under it. He's a priest king forever in the order of Melchizedek. But for the sake of time, we'll move on to the rest of this passage this morning. We see the priest king Melchizedek who recognizes who God is, possessor of heaven and earth, and he blesses Abram that way. And just like we saw in chapter 13, this contrast between Abram's trust in the Lord and Lot's distrust or or Lot's absence of trust in the Lord. So also here in chapter 14, we see a good king, a priest king, Melchizedek, who brings blessing from God. And then we see the opposite in the rotten king of Sodom. In contrast to Melchizedek, who brings Abram wine and bread and blessing, the king of Sodom brings Abram nothing. He offers Abram nothing and instead asks Abram to give him something. After returning from uh, a battle against the Mesopotamians, 
Abram stands now in possession of all that he took from them, including the people that were taken hostage. And the king of Sodom says to Abram, give me the people. Just give me, the, give me my kingdom, which are my people. The possessions you may keep. All the spoils of war, all the booty you can keep for yourself. Just give me the people. The king of, so- king of Sodom, we find, is interested in getting back the people of his kingdom who have survived the war with the Mesopotamians. And in return, he is willing to pay Abram, to pay Abram for his services in rescuing them, a, a mercenary's fee. This rotten and wicked king of Sodom, friends, is only interested in, man- in maintaining his kingdom, even to the point of paying this mercenary's fee to Abram for saving them. The king of Sodom is self-serving and in his wickedness, he is more than happy to employ Abram as, as his own personal soldier and keep Abram as an ally for his own benefit. Give me the people. You keep the money. This could be a good thing for us. But Abram did not go into battle against Keterlaomer and the Mesopotamians for Sodom's sake. He went into battle for Lot's sake, his knuckleheaded nephew who couldn't stay out of trouble. It was not the king of Sodom who delivered the enemies into Abram's hand, but rather, as Melchizedek teaches us, the Lord of all creation who did this. Abram owes nothing to the king of Sodom because the king of Sodom did not deliver him from his enemies or deliver his enemies into his hand. It is God most high, as verse 20 says, who has delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. And so we see the Lord of all creation, the possessor and provider of all things fully on display in this passage before us. We've already seen that this is precisely how Melchizedek refers to the Lord. He's the Lord of all creation, possessor of all things. But notice Abram's response to the wicked king of Sodom. His response confirms for us that this is how Abram has come to know the Lord as well. Abram says to the Sodomite king, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap, not the smallest thing of value from you. Or anything that is oars, so that you may not say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, because I can't give that back, and the share of the men who went with me. So uh, all I want, all I'll take is what the people have eaten to strengthen themselves for battle. In effect, Abram is here saying, I didn't do this for you, king of Sodom, and I sure don't need any reward that you might offer for my work. The Lord is my portion, king of Sodom. He is my promiser and he is my provider. You have no claim on me. Is it not amazing how confidence in the Lord, how trust in the Lord makes the rejection of sinful gain so easy and so clear for Abram? There's no choice in the matter. For Abram, it's not, even a, it's not even a temptation. Profiting from sinful men or in sinful ways is antithetical to the trust that Abram has in the Lord of all creation, who he recognizes as his sole provider. Abram knows and trusts the Lord of all creation in the face of worldly and selfish temptation, and in so doing, can, can cast aside the offers of the world with total confidence in his decision. Why? Because he trusts the Lord, his provider, his possessor. The life of Abram, and God through the life of Abram, teaches us this. That Christian, we must reject all forms of shameful, sinful, and selfish gain. We must reject all forms of shameful, sinful, 
and selfish gain. And instead, we must embrace the Lord himself as our possessor, the one who owns us, and our provider. Satan and the world play with our own sinful hearts to try to win over the devotion of our lives in ways not unlike the king of Sodom here. They offer us a bigger paycheck, a nicer car, a more comfortable retirement, all the possible amenities that we can imagine in life. But Satan and the world and our own sinful hearts never tell us the true cost of those so-called blessings. Abram knew the true cost of taking Sodom's money. He would be indebted to and allied with a wicked man and a wicked kingdom. It's easy for us to see that in the text of Abram's life. It's easy for us to praise Abram and even to say we ought to be like Abram in this way. But I think it's far harder for us to actually practice this in reality. We're allured by the promise of a billion dollar Powerball payout. And persuaded by an extra zero on our paycheck. And we get excited by the prospect of all of the things that money can buy. All of the things that our alliances, our, our, our political or business networks can provide to us. But we often and regularly fail to recognize the true cost of these so-called blessings. We fail to recognize that the billion dollar payout is made possible because of the millions of people who have gambled away their grocery money. And that that extra zero on the paycheck comes at the expense of precious hours that could be spent loving and caring for our spouses and our children and serving the Lord. We fail to see the true cost that in buying everything that money can afford, we have essentially made for ourselves as seen on TV prisons of our own design. Friends, God intends so much better for his people than to have all that your heart desires. And this same God who owns all things and has given his own son for our salvation has also provided for our daily needs according to his infinite wisdom. Not your daily wants, but he does provide your daily needs. Know this, that more than money, Christian, you need to know your God. More than security in this life, you need to know the security of being held in the hand of the only sovereign Lord. More than stuff to fill your home and your storage units, God help us, you need Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham, the promised Savior to all who trust in Him to fill your life. This is especially true, friends, for we who are not exceedingly poor nor exorbitantly wealthy. This is important for, I would say, probably 98% of us in this room this morning who, who live somewhere in the middle with modest incomes and stringent budgets. We who live in that middle space need to trust Christ all the more to protect our hearts from seeking that little bit extra that will make our lives a little bit easier. How much is enough? As one rich man said, just a dollar more. We need Christ to protect our hearts from wanting just one dollar more. We need to know that in Christ, if we have our needs met, we are rich in this age. And on a global scale, even financially speaking, all of us in this room are rich in this age. Not a one of us, I don't think, in this room is having to survive on less than a dollar a day like so many other billions around the world. 
We are rich. We ought to consider ourselves rich and blessed by God already, whether we have millions of dollars in our bank account or dozens of dollars in our bank account. We who may be most tempted to trust in our own efforts to make a living need to heed the words of Paul again to Timothy at the end of his first letter, 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19. Listen to what Paul says. As for the rich in this present age, which by the way, we're all rich in this present age. Paul says, charge them not to be haughty, not to be arrogant, not to be jerks, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but to set their hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, those who are rich in this present age, us friends are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Does that not sound like Abram as he stands there on that high point with lot, but take what, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. Take whatever you want. They're to do good and be rich in good works to be works to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. True life, friend. True life, dear Christian, is in living every moment of every day in the security of knowing that God is the one who possesses you by his grace, through your faith in Jesus Christ. True life is in being secure in the hands of God himself through faith in Jesus. I hope hope you're getting excited about this. This is so important. If you're struggling with being content today, if you're struggling with feeling like I just don't have enough, or if I could just get a little bit more, or if just only this could happen and we'd have this much space in our budget or what, if you're looking for contentment today, this is the antidote. This is the, the, the source. This is the cure for your, your ails of, of, of discontent that you are securely held in the hand of almighty sovereign God, possessor of heaven and earth who has saved you by his son. There is no safer, no more secure place to be than in the hand of God. True life is in knowing that security. True life is in living each moment with gratitude for all that he has provided you. All that he has provided you. Are you truly grateful, Christian, for the house that you think is too small? Are you truly grateful For the 10-year-old car that still runs fine, but it's got over 100,000 miles. Are you truly grateful for the clothes that you may have had to buy at, at Goodwill or a thrift store or off the clearance rack because they're clothes all just the same? Are you grateful, wealthy Christian, for the ease that you have in life that God has allowed you to have? And are you using that for his glory? Are you using that to bless others that God in his wisdom has allowed to live with less? Are you so grateful for what God has provided that you hold it with an open hand to all who are in need? True life is this. True life is in being secure in knowing who you are and who you are held by by faith in Jesus. It is living each moment with gratitude for all that God has provided you. And it is in living with open hands and generous hearts to any who are in need. We can do this, brothers and sisters. We can live true a true life as we trust Christ, 
As we look to God as, as the source, not, not just the source, but even the object of our contentment and our blessing. The one who possesses us and who provides for us. True life is found in looking at him and placing him at the center of our lives. And then opening up all of our lives to any who may have need around us. We can do this because we have had our great debt of sin paid for and not out of our own pockets. Not with gold or silver or any such worthless things. But by the priceless death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of God, the promised fulfillment to all of God's, uh, the fulfillment to all of God's promises in scripture. We can live this way. We can know true life. We can be content in God. Our contentment and blessing, our, our, our possessor and provider. When we know salvation this way. Christian, do you understand your own salvation this way? Do you see the infinite worth of your own salvation? And by it, see how dim everything else around is. Yesterday morning in men's breakfast, as we were reflecting on Hosea chapters 11 and 12, we were reminded of the, of the old song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Christian, if you're struggling with discontentment today, it may be that your eyes are fixed on the wrong things. Dear friend, if you do not yet know Christ the way that we are speaking this morning about having faith in him, trusting him for the forgiveness of your sins to make you right with God, you are still with your eyes focused on the wrong things. But when you set your eyes on Christ, when you repent of your sin and give your life to him in faith, everything else changes. Your worldview changes. Your very nature of your heart changes. The orientation of your life changes because everything pales in comparison to the light of Christ's glory and grace. So trust the Lord. Be content in the Lord. Count the Lord as your greatest blessing in this life because he possesses you by your faith in Jesus Christ and he'll provide for you all that he knows you need. Let's pray.